The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Race and nativist fears and nativist moral panics were integrally connected. And I think Marielle and our story in many ways explores the way that happened. And we try not to be very didactic about all of that. We try to just sort of layer it in with the facts and we explore in great detail uh, the role of Reagan's first attorney general, William French Smith, and the way that he kind of used the language of of race to characterize a, a fear about what open borders might mean or what what this moment in American history might mean if we didn't clamp down on the borders. And Rudy Giuliani was there as his associate attorney general. It all galvanized this kind of draconian idea of incarcerating uh, people who, who come into this country as immigrants, that we would incarcerate them on arrival. If we didn't know who they were, if we didn't know where they came from, if they arrived here seeking asylum, the very first thing we do is throw them in prison. That, was, that did not exist before Marielle. I'm Tyler McBrien, Managing Editor of Lawfare, and this is the Lawfare Podcast, March 13th, 2023. Chip Brantley and Andrew Beck Grace are the creators of the NPR audio documentary White Lies, which was a Pulitzer finalist for its first season. Chip and Andrew are back for season two, a story they began reporting in 2015 after they stumbled on an archival photo of a prison riot in Talladega, Alabama. This season focuses on the Mario Boatlift, a six-month period in 1980 during which 125,000 Cubans emigrated to the U.S. to seek asylum. What they found is as much an American immigration story as a history of American immigration and the laws that govern it. I sat down with Chip and Andrew to discuss the legal fictions that prop up our immigration system, how a country with due process under the law justifies detaining people indefinitely, and their obsession with Lady Bird Johnson's White House audio diaries. It's the Lawfare Podcast, March 13th. Chip Brantley and Andrew Beck Grace on White Lies, Season 2. I, you know, as much as I want to start with, I think, questions about your favorite road snacks and, and things of that nature after, you know, two seasons on the road together, I really want to start with the story itself, um, you know, coming off of the success of season one and, and a Pulitzer finalist, I may add, um, I'm guessing you had a lot of latitude to, you know, tell any story you wanted. So I'm, I'm curious, you know, what the story you chose to tell was and, and why you chose to tell it. Yeah, um, thanks for having us. It's really nice to be here. Uh, it's actually a pretty funny story about the the way that this season came to be. We actually, so the first season is about the murder of Jim Reeb in Selma, Alabama in 1965 and the sort of unsolved nature of that murder and the reasons why it was unsolved for so long. And we actually started working on that story in 2015 and got to the point where we had discovered some new information about uh, things that had happened during the investigation and and really realized there was something 
very interesting to say about this story. And we weren't really positioned at that point. We were independent. We hadn't, we'd not come on board with NPR. We didn't have a relationship with a big broadcast or anything. So we weren't really positioned very well to take on what was going to be a sort of legally fraught story. And so we, we sort of pivoted a little bit and thought, well, let's try to figure out another story we can tell while we're nursing the Selma story along. And so we ended up sort of stumbling upon the story of this prison riot in Alabama in 1991 in Talladega. And of course, that's it just, you know, dominoed into this much larger story about the history of immigration detention, about the Cuban Mariel boat lift, about just all these different things. And so we actually started building out that story and actually took that to NPR to pitch them the show that we wanted to make that was going to be a serial like, you know, seasonal show. We take a different story every year. So in the process of pitching them, what ended up being our second season, we told them about this unsolved civil rights era murder that we'd been working on. So they were like, Oh, we like these guys. They have a good presence and, and they, this, these are smart and interesting stories, but tell us more about this Selma story. And so we ended up actually pitching that uh, kind of as, as our first season and then ended up spending about a year and a half reporting that out. So in the middle of the release of the first season, the show was doing really well. NPR said they wanted a second season. And we said, well, you're in luck because we've already pitched you what we'd like to do next. Um, so they, we, we sort of reported this story about the Talladega prison riot in 2015 and 2016, and then set it down until 2019 and 2020. And then we picked it back up again. Uh, so it's it was kind of a cart horse sort of thing. We should add that the that the the first the what was season one of White Lies, which was, a, as Andy said, a, a civil rights cold case from 1965, it was in, in a lot of ways hard to report because people had died, people had forgotten things. And so when we came to this story, we foolishly said to ourselves and to our editors, this is going to be so much easier. It's, it's, it's set in 1980 and the 90s. There's, there's just so much, you know, everybody's more present. It's a much simpler story to tell. And, and we, were, we, were, we were paid back for that naivety. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm glad to say, and I'm sure many listeners are also glad that you were very wrong in that. <laughs> and and that it was, it's quite a complex story. And, and because of that, it's an interesting one. And, you know, as Andy, as you were saying, it's as much, um, you know, a story about immigration as it is an immigration story. So I want to go back to, you know, where the podcast starts and where you started of the prison riot. You know, what sparked your initial interest in the prison riot? You know, who were the prisoners? Can you sort of lay that out, uh, you know, maybe even using that archival photo that you found? Well, yeah, it really started there. I mean, we found we were going through the photo archives of the Birmingham News uh, here in Birmingham, where I live. And as we allude to in the show, the the, the archives, are, it was just a bunch of mismatched filing cabinets on the third floor of the of the newspaper. You know, 100 plus years of photos arranged chronologically in these little manila envelopes, the negatives were. And so you couldn't really, there was no finding aid or anything. You just sort of found the year you were interested in and started going through it. And so we were looking for something else uh, in 1991 and came across these packets of negatives from what turned out to be August of 1991 that said, Cubans take over federal prison, Cubans take hostages, Cubans deported from Talladega. Just these, at the time, what seemed very odd headings on these middle envelopes. I should say that it's a little embarrassing now to admit that we didn't even know there was a federal prison in Talladega when we started this. It was built in the in the early 80s and very quickly became a holding up spot for, for immigration detainees. And so we found these photos, we scanned them, we looked at them, and they're all pretty boring. I mean, they're just 
this prison riot lasted 10 days. Uh, there were 11 hostages taken, but all that was going on on the inside. And on the outside, it was just a lot of waiting. And so these photographers um, who took these photos from from not only Birmingham News, but all over, were stationed about a quarter of a mile from the prison. The, the uh, FBI and the Bureau of Prisons uh, wanted to keep the media as far away from this as possible for reasons that we we get into later in the in the show. But after we scanned these photos and started looking at them, really the only ones that were at all remotely interesting were these photos of these guys who have gone up on the roof. Some of the Cuban detainees who were being held at the prison once the uh, prison sort of cut the phone lines, went up on the roof with these makeshift banners to try to get the word out about what they were, what they wanted. And just looking at those photos, there was just something so strange about them that that this prison riot had happened. I graduated high school. I'm going to age myself. Graduated high school in 1991, had no memory of this event. And nobody that we talked to really knew much about it or remembered much about it. And having both grown up in Alabama and seeing these photos of this of this prison riot and seeing these, these, these very eerie photos of these men on the roof, it just was an invitation in a way, a provocation. And so we started looking into it and very quickly realized that the story of how those men got to the roof was this sprawling sort of generational epic. Uh, they'd all come over on the Mario boat lift in 1980, which was the largest mass migration in the Western Hemisphere at the time. You know, 125,000 people came in a matter of months on all manner of, of boat. And then as we began to talk to people and began to do more research, we saw what had happened to a lot of those Mario Cubans who came. And that really is the kind of meat of the season. Yeah. And before we rewind to the Mario boat lift and the domino effect of immigration policies and uh, imprisonments that happened then, um, I want to just dwell on the the prison riot for a moment longer. Andy, I think in you know one of your narrations, you mentioned that this story of the prison riot, when you began it, you know, asking around, wasn't so much a hidden history, you know, it was reported in the media at the time, but more of a forgotten history. You mentioned something about the burden of remembering. I'm curious why, you know, why you think it was uh, forgotten, you know, over the decades. Yeah, I mean, as I, actually, that was just about to say something to to uh, about that very thing in regards to Chip's question and, and the, the way in which this story, when we first saw it, we were we were compelled by it, but pretty immediately thought, oh man, this is way too complex. Like this is way. There's way too many variables. There are way too many moving parts. And I think in many ways, and in, in a way that's kind of like dovetails with some of the stuff that I think was happening in season one of our show too, is that sometimes we forget these stories that are instructive in certain ways about our history and about who we are as a people and about the decisions we make and the ways that our court system and our legal systems operate, partly because they get framed as being so complex. And at the end of the day, this story is actually fairly simple. You have a group of people yearning to come to this country as people for you know hundreds of years now have have yearned to finding themselves as welcomed as refugees and then pretty immediately suspected of all all manner of of nefarious things and that narrative ended up shaping their experience and so i think you know that 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 complexity and the way in which that that story it, it was difficult at the time that we started it to know that that would actually be the benefit of the story is the great complexity of it but that's certainly something we felt pretty early on um, and in terms of the the reasons why I think it's easy to look away from something like this is we can couch it as complexity and that is certainly part of it but it's also something kind of more fundamental in that when you look at what happened to these men 
it's an indirect contradiction to the sort of baseline things we say about who we are as a country, uh, the way that we're going to welcome the stranger, that this is a nation of immigrants. These are all these are all phrases and ideas that are familiar to us. They're also familiar, especially in the parlance of the left, as critiques of this country because we clearly don't do this. But these are these are bedrock values we say we have. You know, our documents talk about all people being created equal. Obviously, that's a <laughs> complicated and tricky subject when you have the the men who are writing this owning enslaved people. Um, so what? who are those people, right? But it doesn't say all citizens. And that's true throughout the documents. There's this kind of, the sense that this country is based on this notion of deeper human rights than just citizenship and ethnicity. Um, and yet, in this case, because these people were non-citizens, we essentially deem them to have no rights, that their rights didn't matter, that their that their inborn human rights that the documents celebrate were not actually they they weren't they weren't meaningful to us. In fact, the very famous line from the Ignaz Mazze uh, Supreme Court ruling is that that this this citizen Ignaz Mazze, this Romanian who'd come to this country, found himself detained in immigration detention because he, they didn't want to accept him into the country, and no other nation would take him. And the the ruling there says it, it, that this man is no more ours than theirs. In other words, we have no responsibility for him. And I think that's in pretty direct contradiction to the way that a lot of people in this country like to imagine who we are. So I think those are the those are the reasons why it was easy to forget something like this. And honestly, pretty easy to look away. I mean, when you when you hear this notion of kids in cages, like I find myself wanting to look away from that too. It's a, is a very very overwhelming thing. And then you say, well, immigration is complex because we have to have controls and what is a nation and what is a border and and all that stuff just gets real gray real quick. And I, I feel like one of the virtues of trying to tell the story in the way that we've tried to tell the story is we're trying to strip away some of that artifice, some of that sort of complexity by getting really deeply into what exactly happened in the situation. And once you see that, these justifications for who we are as a people, they, they sort of fade away to some degree. Um, and then they, they make us question ourselves at a much deeper, more profound level. At least I hope. I mean, that's the point we, of the work we do. So, Yeah, I think you're touching on one of the strongest themes that came through to me when I was listening, um, this distinction between history and theater. Chip, I wonder if you could touch on that. I think this came through again and again, you know, where history and theater either do overlap in some cases and then many times when they're at odds with each other. Yeah. I mean, one of the, we've, we've now decided if we get to do this again, we have to do a story that can have Lady Bird Johnson archival audio in it because we've now done that for two seasons and we couldn't do it any other way at this point. Yeah, it's, a, it's a trope. It's the, it's the Lady Bird Johnson <laughs> uh, launches you on a quest trope, you know? That's right. Yeah. So, so that, that distinction between theater and history we introduce in, in the first episode. And it is a line from Lady Bird Johnson's audio diary that she kept throughout uh, LBJ's presidency. And this was, she's describing when she says her, her actual line, it was good history and it was good theater. I can't do a Lady Bird Johnson accent, but it was good history and it was well, good that's theater. Pretty good. <laughs> I've heard it enough. It should just be in my brain, ready to play at a moment's notice. But she's referring to the signing of the Immigration Act of 1965, which uh, LBJ signed uh, at the base of the Statue of Liberty uh, in October. Is that right, Andy? October 1965? Yeah, I don't remember the month. And he had his favorite opera singer, whose name I've forgotten, sing 
I think it was America the Beautiful. Yeah, we tried right. tried very hard to find archival of that and could not find it. But um, but she says of that moment um, of the signing of the Immigration Act of 1965, which was at that point the 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 most progressive one might argue the only progressive immigration act in the country's history, which really radically sort of shifted the the demographics of this country over the next you know, 40 50 years. She said of it, it was good history, and just the the moment itself was good theater. Um, signing it on to the base of the Statue of Liberty, invoking the words there um, at the Statue of Liberty, and that when we heard that, really felt like that is the that is the theme for the season. This distinction and this tension between the theater on the one hand, the story we tell about who we are, and the history, what actually happened, and. As we explore in the show, sometimes those overlap, sometimes they align. And that moment in 1965 was one of those. It was one of those times that it felt like it was aligning. And there were moments of beats in our story, um, parts of the Mario Boatlift, where it feels like we are trying to live up to the story we tell about ourselves, that we welcome the stranger, that we're a country of immigrants. But as we dig into, as 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 the show goes on, that was a moment. And then this story that we're exploring, the the theater and the history began to diverge again. And the theater of that this would be this sort of, uh, you know, great welcoming of all these refugees really was overtaken pretty quickly by a darker narrative about who these people were, that they were communists, that they were black and brown people, that they were here to sort of take something from us, you know, from mainstream American society. All that began to to really um, overtake the narrative of the boat lift and really shifted. uh, And as Andy mentioned just a minute ago, it really began to, that story began to trap these Mario excludables, these Mario, these men who, who would um, struggle for the next decade to, to find freedom. Yeah. Let's talk about that fairly rapid narrative shift from, you know, as you tell it, you know, at the beginning of the Mariel boat lift, it was really, you know, thought of as this sort of freedom flotilla of, um, you know, Cubans seeking freedom in uh, in the United States, uh, but quickly shifted, as you said, into something darker. So, you know, what what do you attribute to that, you know, quick shift that really, as you said, trapped the Marielitos from that point forward? Yeah, I mean, I think it's it's a it's a kind of a combination of things, and a lot of it has to do with the press, frankly. I mean, I, I think one of the things we have been really interested in in our work through these two seasons and also just thinking about future stories that we want to tell. And I, I think it maybe just comes from our our just interest as journalists too, is is the role that the media has in shaping perception in so many ways, especially as as an event is unfolding. And what happened initially is this, you know, it's this is a this is an anti-communist moment, right? And a in a very anti-communist period in our history in the Cold War. And the idea that this these these uh, Cuban Americans would come down to Mariel and pull these people out of communism was a really incredible galvanizing moment for the country and especially for for the Cuban exile community in Miami. In fact, I think it was the largest the largest demonstrations in Miami's history were pro Mariel demonstrations and food drives and all kinds of stuff that was happening in the early days of the boat lift. And then I think what happened is, you know, it's it's a kind of, I'm going to critique exile Cubans and Marielle, so I've got to be careful here about the way that I phrase this, but I think it's backed up in a lot of the research and conversations we've had with lots and lots of folks in Miami, is that there was this sort of tenuous hold on, on nascent political power in Miami from now Cuban Americans, the, the first generation, first wave Cubans. 
And when they started seeing who was actually coming over, you know, that first wave of Cubans that came after the revolution were largely uh, well-educated. A lot of them had money. A lot of them were aligned with American business interests. There, there were all kinds of people who came, but the majority of them were considered white as they arrived into this country. I mean, they were considered Cuban first. That's what they would tell you. And they're right about that. But they were light-skinned. They, they were sort of ushered into whiteness. Michael Bustamante, this historian at the University of Miami, who's himself Cuban-American, has written about this extensively, that they were kind of funneled into what at that time was a sort of segregation academies of Miami, that as a city was kind of coming out of segregation, Cubans found themselves being identified as white and, and galvanizing that sort of political power and that sort of cultural power that whiteness has um, in a place like this country. And so I think when they when there was an initial excitement about bringing out the 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 Cubans from from communist Cuba, but then when you when you have twenty year olds, uh, single men, many of them Afro Cuban, there's estimates that around a third of the boat lift were Afro Cuban, dark skin, not educated, and then one of the things that I think is really distinct about the group of Mario Cubans is that they had grown up underneath the communist regime. They had grown up under in Castro's Cuba. They had not grown up in capitalist Cuba. And so there's a kind of ideological difference between the people who are coming. And then the, the biggest sort of death knell for the for the freedom flotilla narrative is the story that Castro had emptied his jails and was and this is the words that get used over and over again. Castro had emptied his jails and emptied his mental ins, mental institutions. That that phrasing and that idea and then the proof, the reality that in some of these in some of the early days of the boat lift Castro did cede some of these ships with lots of folks who uh, were coming from prisons. Most of them were low-level offenders. There were a lot of political prisoners, but there was no doubt. And they said on as they arrived on the docks, yes, I came from a Cuban prison. I was in jail for stealing, or I was uh, in jail because of my political activity, or I, did, I refused to join the military. But in many cases, that was enough you know, for that perception and those optics to galvanize around this changing narrative that these were these were not people we wanted to welcome into this country, and the the sort of communist, you know, veneer fell away from them, and instead they became criminal aliens as opposed to, you know, refugees seeking freedom. I think is one of the ways we talk about it on the show, and so I think the media played into that a lot. In fact, uh, there's a New York Times story the day that this large ship, the America, arrives, which is something we talk about. The America had been basically hired by a few hundred, I think, Cuban Americans to bring back 600 or so Cuban relatives. There was not a single relative on that boat. It was all people that the Cuban government had put aboard. Many of them were suspected mental patients and and people from prisons. The reality is likely that many of them were low-level offenders or they were people that were in detention in Cuba for vagrancy or whatever it might be. But these were not desirable people in this in the sort of common sense. So I think even that moment and when that happens, the New York Times headline is, I mean, it's not a headline you could get away with today, but it talks about the the retarded people being put on the boats. And that's on the front page of the New York Times. Uh, and I think there's a, there's a real shift that happens at that particular moment. And then, you know, we talk about this in the show, but later on, sociologists and media critics have, have sort of studied the way that the story gets told and the negative coverage in the Miami Herald in particular of the Mariel Cubans it just, it flips almost overnight. And all of a sudden, Marielle is a problem. Even before Marielle becomes a problem, Marielle's being characterized as a problem. And then for years, for years, we talked to one reporter, Fabiola Santiago, who who told us that for years, anytime anyone associated with Marielle committed a crime of any sort, they would refer to him in the, in the paper as a Marielle 
criminal or a Mario Cuban, where they didn't really do that for other groups. You know, as she said, we didn't do that for people from Ohio, for example. And as Andy alluded to, the the people who've studied the the number of serious criminals who may have come over in Mariel, it's a really small percentage of the overall boatlift population. But in the in the collective imagination that was a boatlift filled entirely with criminals, we had one interviewed a, a man who worked at a refugee resettlement camp who described it perfectly when he said that they were sent here with a label and we accepted that label. And really, once that label was affixed to these guys, pretty much everything that happened from then on was just this sort of vicious loop where they were perceived this way. Therefore, it became harder for them to find sponsors. Uh, the fact that they couldn't find sponsors just hardened the image of them as people who couldn't, who weren't worthy of sponsoring. Uh, and it just, that loop just kept going until, until they, you know, had been detained for a long time. Yeah, I think one of the the more disturbing things I remember listening is is I think a perfect illustration of what we're talking about here of you know this perception of the right kind of refugee or immigrant, i.e., white. Uh, when I think it was a, an INS person at the INS was receiving response requests from people who wanted you know educated white refugees who speak English, and the, the INS person you know basically was like, "This is not a serious catalog for for refugees." You know, I want to uh, trace now the, the fate of, of the Mario uh, refugees, um, or rather asylum seekers, as as the distinction is, is made clear later on from... Thank you for for, for recognizing that. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, you know, actually, this, this might be a good time to talk about that. I think um, yeah. one of the, one of the really interesting legal questions here was, you know, the, the importance of labels of, you know, refugee versus asylum seeker, especially with the... I think uncannily timed Refugee Act that that came out uh, a few weeks before. So, could you actually talk about that distinction? Yeah, um, I've had a few semesters of imaginary law school, <laughs> and so and a few of those courses were in imaginary law of immigration history. So, I'm I'm gonna tr- I'm gonna speak with a little bit of imaginary experience well, we, here. We but, fought um, really hard for that for that imaginary uh, law to be in the show too, and so uh, it's gratifying <laughs> yeah. to hear you just drop in the distinction between asylum seeker and refugee. And right. I and I've yeah. seen your imaginary JD, and, and for all the listeners, it, it's it's very real and very imaginary. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. Yeah, um, yeah. Every time we'd be on with one of NPR's lawyers and talking about some issue of fair use, I would always have to. And my, my father's an attorney; it's a, a bad habit I have. But, uh, but it is. It turns out that habit. when you work on a story yeah. like this, you end up spending a ton of time reading legal review articles and diving into the history of of how we have thought about immigration in this country, and it's really actually pretty fascinating. And you're right that it is an incredible coincidence that in 1980, because of the priorities of the Carter administration, they completely revamped the way that they imagined how we would welcome refugees into this country. But that imagining had nothing to do with something like the boat lift or even the southern border for that matter. It had everything to do with sort of Cold War, communist country kind of priority, and also the notion of refugee camps far away from this country where people would be processed. And then we could bring them, we could bring them in in a sort of quota system of however many people from that country we wanted to bring in whatever year. In fact, it was, I think it was an annual reallotment of, of whatever number from whatever country. So it did, it had in no way envisioned something like Mariel happening. And I think the, the distinction of why these folks were treated initially as refugees or thought to be refugees by the media and by Cuban Americans, certainly in Miami, and then pretty quickly deemed to be something different uh, has everything to do with the nature of their arrival. And also something that we don't, our show does not spend a lot of time talking about and thinking about because it's a little bit off the axis of 
you know, we come back, we even say in the show at one point that it's the indefinite detention, stupid. Like this idea that galvanized us to want to tell the story in the first place is the fact that because of all the things that we go into in the show, we essentially took a group of non-citizens and said, because we can't send them back, we can indefinitely detain them without a charge for year after year after year. And that is so shocking on a sort of central, sort of what who we are as a country level that that has become the lodestar for us. And so we've oriented a lot of the storytelling around that. And and be, because of that, we've had to sort of leave certain very, very interesting elements out. But because we're talking about the show, I'll tell you this one particular interesting element, which is the concurrence of the Haitian migrants while Marielle was unfolding. It has a lot to do with why the Cubans were treated the way, the way they were, because there was all of a sudden this terrifying reality to certain political forces in this country and and also just to the the notion of of having borders and having some control over that that in a place like Florida in particular you could have people from island nations show up and if your refugee laws allowed for that there would be no quota system we would just have to take these folks in and the the wet foot dry foot po- policy which obama did away with had really allowed that for for cubans but the sheer number of arrivals mostly from Cuba, but but concurrent arrivals from Haiti made them feel like we have got to change this designation. We cannot just allow all these people in as refugees. So the so the actual legal definition of who they were was Cuban-Haitian entrant status pending. It's like the longest <laughs> immigration designation ever. Um, and it was only for this period of a f- whatever it was, four and a half months or so. There's a very specific start date and a very specific end date. Uh, and if you arrived via the ocean during that time from one of those two nations, that's who you were. You were not a refugee. And in certain ways, you weren't even really properly an asylum seeker. You were an entrant who had come to this country without permission. And now we were going to determine your status. And that could be through asylum claims. Many people tried to take advantage of the Refugee Act unsuccessfully. And so there's a there's a there's just such a complex legal history to what was happening at the time with our immigration policies. It's, it's very fascinating. And and again, my imaginary law degree uh, is coming in handy here as I talk about it. But we talked to so many great immigration attorneys about all of this, and it, it really is fascinating. Well, and that and that interest status, the 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 big imp- the consequence of that of that new status too, meant that you weren't legally seen to be in the country. You were, you were an entrant. You were at the border, basically asking to come in legally speaking. So, um, as we explore, and I'm sure we'll talk about that entrance status meant that you were that you were not you were not you're not set foot in the country legally even though you of course were in the country when you're ready to pop the question the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring at bluenile.com you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online choose your diamond and setting when you found the one you'll get it delivered right to your door Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at UH1.com. Yeah, it seems like a great place to talk about, you know, actually, this is one of my favorite uh, legal concepts and that of the the legal fiction. And so you, as you were just um, sort of hinting at as the, the idea of the entry fiction, which is the name of one of your episodes. So can you just for the listener, uh, you know, what is the entry fiction? How does it fit into this story? And then maybe 
a little bit about the story of uh, Ignaz Maze. Yeah. Yeah. So the entry fiction is is a, a very understandable framework. It's a legal fiction, which, again, going back to my, my training here, but the legal fiction idea is that we have to construct something that on the face of it seems untrue and is untrue simply to kind of articulate a principle of the law. And that's probably a pretty inarticulate way to say it. But in this case, you have, you have let's take Ellis Island, early 20th century as an example, because this is where it originates. You have people arriving on a ship. You have INS agents who want to ask these people about their backgrounds, where they're coming from, what country they're coming from because of certain quotas and things of that nature, what their history is. Are they fleeing persecution of some sort? Are they political refugees? Were they, you know, there are all kinds of, all manner of questions that the immigration service might want to ask a, a potential entrant into the country. And during that time that those interviews are taking place, initially those interviews took place on ships, literally on the ship. The immigration agents would go onto the ship. And as the ships got larger and as more people came in the late 19th, early 20th century, there's so many people coming, they kind of allow for there to be this temporary removal. And so you go into this holding place, Ellis Island was a common one, where you are interviewed. But while you're there, you're not seen to be in the country. You're seen to be still Legally speaking, the fiction is that you're on the boat, but you're not on the boat. You're you're on the land, but the legal fiction is you're you're still on the boat. And during that de- that determining time, you're not in the country, and and, and they're, they're telling you you're on the boat, but you're actually in the country. So what is fascinating about what happens with these Mariel Cubans is that 125,000 people come to this country from Cuba, and they're all said to be floating off the coast while we decide whether or not we're going to let them in. So they use immigration parole. It was the first big place where immigration parole was used. It had been used in the 50s. It had existed for a long time for smaller groups of people, but it had never been used on this scale. And it wasn't really designed. This is why they created this sort of Cuban-Haitian entrance status pending designation, because it was a way to kind of codify what parole for this specific group of people looked like. Um, so yeah, it is, it's a fascinating distinction. And it really imperils these folks because that parole into the country isn't a criminal parole. They haven't committed a crime by which they are now being you know, monitored or th- anything like that. They are being, we are making a determination about whether or not we're going to take this person into the country. So the minute they run afoul of the law in any way, that can be, that can be an opportunity for revocation for parole. And what I mean by that is that's an opportunity for the American government to say, all right, you asked to come in and now we're saying no, and now we're going to send you back. But in the case of these Cubans, they could not send them back, which is one of the distinctions that makes our story about these Cubans different than the Haitians. The Haitians could be sent back. I mean, there's lots to say about how problematic that was. But with the Cubans, when they said, we want to send you back, they had nowhere to go except for these federal prisons throughout the country where they were detained in some hope that at maybe some point in the future, there would be some remedy. But in the, but in the meantime, they were, they were languishing without any sort of legal rights, without any constitutional protections, without any due process. Uh, a lot of volunteer attorneys came out of the woodwork to essentially advocate for these folks. But it was all outside the bounds of, of a normal criminal proceeding because they were not seen to have any legal rights at all to be in the country. Yeah, I think um, you know one of the biggest questions that I, I think anyone who's listening to this would have is, you know, in a country with due process under the law, how can indefinite detention like this occur? So I'm, you know, I'm curious, maybe Chip, if you can think of any of the other legal justifications that were used, you know, to perpetuate this indefinite detention, stupid. I'm yeah. not calling you stupid. <laughs> well, Andy Andy does all the time, so it's you can too. So. True. I haven't built up that report yet, but hopefully by the end of this. And then and then maybe also on the flip side, you know, as you mentioned, uh, the, some of these really incredible stories of volunteer attorneys and and you know legal aid organizations 
coming out of the woodwork to use some really creative, um, you know, counter justifications to actually get some of these people out of the prisons. Yeah, I mean the 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 basic law that was used to justify this entry fiction, as it was called, that, that that these Cubans weren't here, and therefore, since they're not here, since they're not on U.S. soil, they don't have right to due process. They have no constitutional rights. It is as if they are not here, as if they are floating off the coast asking to come in, was this mid-1950s Supreme Court case um, involving uh, a man, Ignaz Vizet, who Andy mentioned earlier, who was Romanian, who'd come to this country in 1923, Settled in Buffalo, New York, got married to an American citizen, became stepfather to her to her three children, and in the forties, uh, Mize found out that his mother was dying back in Romania and tried to go back to to care for her. Made it as far as Hungary before he found out his mother died, and so then began the process of trying to come back to the United States. But in the 25 years that he had been in the United States, Ignaz Mize had not become a U.S. citizen, and so when he returned in a very very different scenario, um, 1923 versus versus uh, the late 40s, early 50s, when, of course, the, the Cold War has set in. Um, there is anti-communist fervor in the United States, and he has just been going back basically close to, if not behind the Iron Curtain. And uh, so he's suspected of being a communist or a communist sympathizer. U.S. immigration authorities, when he comes back to the country, deny him entry. Even though he has his life back in Buffalo, they say no. Um, and because he is not a citizen and he's basically asking again, asking to come into the country, um, he's detained at Ellis Island, uh, his home country, uh, Romania won't take him back. He tries to go to other countries that won't take him back. And so he basically languishes at Ellis Island. He's detained there for, for years, um, sues the federal government many times. Finally, the U S Supreme court in, I believe 1953, I think that's 54, right. 53, 54, uh, makes a ruling saying that the U.S. can detain a non-citizen. And not only can it detain a non-citizen, it can detain a non-citizen indefinitely. And that that non-citizen really has no recourse to challenge that detention. So basically, not only can you be detained, you can be detained indefinitely, and there's no real way to challenge it. There's no, you have no process through which you can challenge that detention. So as soon as Mariel starts happening, as soon as these rumors about who is being sent from Cuba, and as soon as the narrative of the of the boat lift is changing, U.S. Uh, immigration officials um, and DOJ officials start crafting uh, basically a, a, a legal argument that is uh, based on Mazay, that these people are not in the country. They are entrants asking to come in. Therefore, they can be detained while we figure out what to do with them and try to work to send them back. And as Andy said, because the U.S. and Cuba had no migration agreement at the time and weren't really even speaking officially diplomatically, even though there were low-level talks uh, going on all the time, there was no process to send these guys back, the, the people that they wanted to send back. And so, the U.S. basically crafted this argument that they would maintain for years that these people were not in the country, therefore they had no due, no due process. And so, you know, if you think this is happening in 1980, a couple of months, that's, you know, someone being deten- detained without cause. That goes, you know, in the end of 1980. Now it's been, what, six months? And then going into 1981, now it's been a year. The time just is is creeping by, basically, and these people were, you know, when the when the Mario Cubans came into the country, they had some immigration interviews done in Florida, but very quickly realized they couldn't manage it all there. So they sent them to refugee resettlement camps scattered around the country, with the main one being in Fort Chaffee, Arkansas, 
And as those immigration interviews happened, certain people would be, for all sorts of reasons that we explore in the show, maybe they would admit to having been in a Cuban prison for something. Maybe someone would, uh, another Mariel refugee would would basically rattle them and say that they were a serious criminal. could be anything, really. Um, They could be detained uh, at a federal prison. So they sent them to Talladega, Alabama. They sent them to Leavenworth, to Terre Haute. They sent them to the federal prison in Atlanta, Georgia. And so... By 1981, the federal prison in Atlanta, Georgia, which had been scheduled to close the year before, had become the main holding pen for these immigration detainees. And basically, because these guys had no real constituency, there's no, I mean, they were outside of Miami, as Andy talked about earlier, sort of Miami Cubans initially, the established Cuban community in Miami, had kind of turned on these guys. They just had no real advocates. Um, but they happened to be in Atlanta, and um, very quickly uh, in 1981, the Atlanta Legal Aid um, Society kind of came to their defense and would when, would basically be the, by their side for the next ten years. Yeah, I just I just want to uh, go back to Mize for just a second because I, it's it's worth thinking about, and then we should definitely talk more about the Atlanta Legal Aid Society and their work and, and the judge in that in those cases, Judge Shub. But the Mize. There's one thing that you, there's so much information you learn when you're reporting on a story like this, and there's so much that gets left on the cutting room floor. And one of the one of the heartbreaks for me was not being able to talk more about this incredible uh, dissent in the Mosaic case from uh, Justice Robert Jackson, who has maybe some of the most beautiful language of any Supreme Court ruling I've ever read. Uh, well, a dissent in this case, and he says of Mosaic, I've just pulled it up because I want to make sure I get it right. Since we were since we proclaim him a Samson who might pull down the pillars of our temple. We should not be surprised if people's less prosperous, less strongly established, and less stable feared to take him off our timorous hands. And then he has what gets quoted, I think, in lots of writing about great, beautiful writing within the law. Government counsel ingeniously argued that Ellis Island is his refuge, whence he is free to take leave in any direction except west. That might mean freedom if only he were an amphibian. (laughs) <laughs> it's just beautiful writing, you know. This idea that uh, he's he's he yeah, sure he can go anywhere just if he could swim, you know. It's it's a uh, and and really the reason why Justice Jack- Jackson writes the way he does is because he understands that the law actually allows our country to do this. So he's he's less arguing on the merits of the law and is arguing instead against the majority by saying we are not these people. We should not be these people, and we are, in this case, being these people—people people that we say we're not going to be. So, it's a it, for those of you who might be interested in immigration law who haven't read this dissent. It's I highly recommend it. Well, and it's and it's the other thing to say about Mose too is that I mean I think two a one people we've talked to who have studied the implications of it think of it as just a terrible decision. I mean, it was a five four decision, but it's still is still I, I, I don't know that we talked to anyone who remains in favor of that decision. but I'm remains. pretty sure the government's attorney who argued against the Mario Cubans <laughs> remains in favor. I don't, know that, I don't know that he was in favor of it. He just uh, was thankful that he had it. Exactly. But who who was Jackson's uh, law clerk at the time? Oh, he's a Rehnquist, I think. Rehnquist, yeah. Who disagreed with him, right? I believe so, yeah. I need to fact check that, but... This is the this is the nerdy legal history that the listeners want. This is great. Um, no, that's a beautiful passage. If I, I was thinking, if if I were your editor, I would have forced you to put that in because that was that, <laughs> no. that's great. And then I will say, uh, if, you know, fortunately, something that did make it in it was uh, I'm I grew up in the, the suburbs of Atlanta, and the sort of mini um, history of the Atlanta penitentiary was just fascinating. I won't go too far into it, but um, it was definitely you know 
for anyone interested in Atlanta history, it was that was a great part. I want to just go back also to what you mentioned of you know some of the efforts of of Judge Shub to to undo some of the, the harmful effects of of the Mzee ruling that uh, you know he was then you know I think overruled you know on appeal but you know some of his arguments um, and then also if you could talk about you know I really like the distinction you made between um, sort of the the interpretation of the law uh, versus following the law and you know his idea of that. Yeah, I mean, it really goes back to Judge or Justice Jackson. Same thing. It's like we, some one of the questions that the law has to to, to address for us is the degree to which we only follow uh, what the letter says, and, or to the degree to which we follow bigger principles that are embedded within the documents. Um, and I think, for my money, and I guess I'm a just a, a diehard sort of civil libertarian in this regard, the documents are the guiding force. And and when the government, in particular, argues well, yes, but you see, we have connected this perplexing and peculiar precedent with this perplexing and peculiar precedent to arrive at a decision which strips people of their fundamental rights. And therefore, it's okay, because I can make the steps back to how the law allows us to do that. And I think that's what Judge Shub saw as well in, in the Northern District of, of Georgia, that the government, the government's attorneys, the attorneys for the Justice Department, we're making this argument based on Mazay. And when he looks at Mazay, he says, well, but this is, Mazay was, was, was decided improperly. This doesn't, this, this should not, this should not be allowed to happen in this country. And he has a great line in his, in his first big ruling uh, in favor of these Mariel Cubans, uh, because the, the Justice Department has essentially said to him, you actually don't have authority here uh, because of the doctrine of plenary power. It's the federal government who gets to make these decisions. The fact that you're even hearing a habeas corpus case about the detention of some of these Mariel Cubans is an anomaly. You shouldn't have taken it. You don't have jurisdiction. You shouldn't be making this decision at all. And so he writes in his decision, is it the court's, is it our court's, my court's responsibility to make this decision? We have decided that it is. I mean, he, he essentially takes their challenge at face value and says, I'm ordering this man released because I think it is my right and my, I think it is what this court is established for. The 11th Circuit disagreed with him. And another thing on the cutting room floor, but might be interest of interest to your uh, audience is the degree to which or, or how contentious that got um, between the 11th Circuit and Judge Shub and his clerks it became very personal. And it, it's still, I think, from all the folks we talked to, Judge Shub is deceased. The folks on the 11th Circuit, the judges who made those decisions are also deceased. So we can't really get the direct back and forth between those folks anymore. But from the clerk's perspective and the folks who were in the courtroom at the time, it became particularly personal in a way that I think is has been frustrating for those in the Atlanta legal community who were in favor of the rights of these guys, that, that you could have this established respected judge be so thoroughly not really humiliated because from an intellectual standpoint he was never humiliated but the 11th circuit constantly telling him he had no right to make these rulings one of the one of the justices on the 11th circuit told an attorney for the cubans that we can keep these people in jail until they die and at some point one of the folks from the justice department i think it may have been rudy giuliani you know made this kind of almost threatening phone call to shub saying you have got to step away from these you can't, you cannot be ruling on this anymore. We, we have the things that we want to do at the federal level and it's not your responsibility. And it, you know, there, there's, there's still, I think some schisms in the Atlanta legal community because of that. Yeah. He, you know, it's interesting about the, those Shub's first orders. And so, we, so what they found, so all these, I can't remember the exact numbers, but that, you know, in the thousands of, of, of Mario Cubans were being detained in Atlanta as of let's say the middle of 1981 and every imaginable 
case that you, every sort of case that you can come up with for who these guys were, were, were there. Like there were all sorts of scenarios. And so the Atlanta legal aid attorneys who started trying to, to work on their behalf just couldn't handle it all. I mean, there were just, there, first of all, there were no immigration judges in Atlanta at the time. So they were at the mercy of immigration judges from around the country cycling through for little stints there. And most of the Mario Cubans came with very little uh, in the way of documentation. Uh, and so getting the, an actual story about what had happened to these guys in Cuba, what they may or have done or not done uh, was virtually impossible. But very quickly, what the what the INS, what the DOJ claimed was that they had the right, the government had the right to detain these guys solely for lacking entry papers, which no Mario Cuban had, zero, not, not of, none of the 130,000, I should say none, if any, very few of the 130,000, 125 to 130,000 Mario Cubans had entry papers, had proper documentation to enter the country. And so on that standard, all of them were able to be detained indefinitely for lacking entry papers. And so Judge Shu very quickly, I think, even though the Mazay precedent said that the, the government did, in fact, um, have the right to detain uh, any of these people indefinitely and, and give them no recourse to challenge their detention, very quickly, as Andy said, realized that that was not fair, it wasn't reasonable, it wasn't humane, and so sort of made, I think, a distinction there between simply following the Mazay precedent versus interpreting the law in a way that that spoke to the documents and spoke to the ideals expressed in the documents. You know, as I was listening, um, I think I was having a lot of uh, feelings of deja vu, perhaps. So I'm curious, you know, what, you know, to the extent to which uh, we can trace some of the roots of today's immigration policy challenges to the Mariel episode and, and some of the other episodes that you, that you've successfully woven throughout. Yeah. What lessons do you have for today from, from this story? Yeah. I mean, I, I don't think, well, I know we didn't know this is what's so incredible about the work we get to do uh, is that we had a kind of initial, I would think of it kind of in a way as a mystery. And we certainly, from a narrative standpoint, try to frame it that way. But it was a series of questions and a series of confusions, frankly, when we heard about this story and and learned about the contours of its broader history. And so I think we set out wanting to understand that stuff better. So we didn't set out knowing that what we were going to find would help explain the situation we find ourselves in today, but damn if it didn't do that. I mean, we, we in in going and exploring what happened during Marielle and the way that our immigration law was essentially utilized the public perception of Marielle to create, to recreate, I should say, but on a on a scale unimaginable before then, the notion of immigration detention was really fascinating. I mean, the the Reagan administration's lawyers, really not Reagan himself, who was as I'm sure listeners know, uh, pretty pretty in favor of, of a more sensible and humane kind of uh, immigration policy. And ironically, very, very sensible toward Cuba because of his sort of an- general longstanding anti-communist uh, perception there of, of we should welcome any Cuban that wants to come here. But this this perception in, across the country that the media perpetuated about who the Mariel Cubans were created a moment where we could detain these people with the idea that they were criminals and that we didn't even really need to interrogate that question too much. We just put them in jail. And there's a great, as a historian um, who wrote a great book called Forever Prisons, his name's Elliot Young, about the sort of creation of the immigration detention empire. And as we, as I talked to him about, he's not in the show, but did a, you know, had a long conversation with him after I read his book. And 
one of the things that he said that really was very interesting to us is that, you know, the laws existed, the ability to detain non-citizens who came to this country asking for some sort of entry that had existed for a very long time. But Marielle provided the optics to allow the creation of the sort of system that we have, that we now have in this country where we detain more immigrants than any other nation at any point in history. I mean, we have an immigration detention system, which is, I, I think, very familiar to most Americans, unlike it was maybe even 10 years ago. And so I think it, the roots of that system come out of Marielle in many ways and come out of the the intersecting policies and realization, really, that race and nativist fears and nativist moral panics were integrally connected. And I think Marielle and our story in many ways explores the way that happened. And we try not to be very didactic about all of that. We try to just sort of layer it in with the facts and we explore in great detail uh, the role of Reagan's first attorney general, William French Smith, and the way that he kind of used the language of of race to characterize a, a fear about what open borders might mean or what what this moment in American history might mean if we didn't clamp down on the borders. And Rudy Giuliani was there as his associate attorney general. It all galvanized this kind of draconian idea of incarcerating uh, people who, who come into this country as immigrants, that we would incarcerate them on arrival. If we didn't know who they were, if we didn't know where they came from, if they arrived here seeking asylum, the very first thing we do is throw them in prison. That was that did not exist before Marielle, and it exists as a result of Marielle. Yeah, I think as you well pointed out, many of the um, aspects of the system can be traced to this episode, but also many people. I was really surprised uh, the extent to which so many familiar characters of the '90s, early 2000s, even through today, kept coming up, like Rudy Giuliani, Bill Clinton, uh, Bill Barr. Um, it was it was almost like a Forrest Gump situation where you know American players touched. This well, and we could go deeper too. <laughs> Unfortunately, we didn't get there's uh, John Roberts was a young attorney in, in Reagan's uh, in the White House at the time, and uh, John Bolton, John, John Bolton ha- yeah. has some has some rulings about this. I mean, Giuliani was really the one where we were like, oh my goodness, we've got this Giuliani stuff. Partly because he's one of the few that actually made public comments about it. That when you're making radio, it's very helpful to have people speaking, especially with a recognizable voice like Giuliani's. Well, and he was the he was the boy person. I mean, he was he was the attack dog too for the government mm-hmm. when it came to the Mario Cubans. Yeah, I'm curious. You know, if there's anything else uh, you wanted to talk about that was left on the cutting room floor, there was some already some great nuggets you mentioned. But anything else you wished you could have shoehorned in? I think you know, as much as we can trace the roots of today to Mariel in a lot of ways, I think one of the things that we at least start off doing, and and you know, allude to throughout, but but maybe it didn't land as much as we wanted to was just how it's a, this was in a lot of ways, a, a, you know, a newer manifestation of an old American sin. Like this was Mario gave the government the the tools to create the system, but they did it by tapping into some, some long simmering sentiments in this country. Um, and I think we, we allude to that in the first episode and, and, um, and I think that's just a, an abiding interest of ours, regardless of the story. Yeah, I, I, one quote I wrote down was the that you you referred to this as you know the easiest and oldest kind of American theater, and uh, I think that really came through. Yeah. yeah, yeah, it's definitely the it's the thread um, that that I think connects the seasons, and and also the the story that we're really interested in in continuing to pursue is the way in which we the way in which our history is often oftentimes at odds with with the story we like to tell about who we are as a people. Tyler, you'll have to um, uh, apologize to Benjamin that we didn't 
work in the phrase plenary authority or plenary power. We felt shamed that we were going to come uh, back on lawfare not having worked in the phrase plenary power into the show. It's a yeah, real failing. A, I was uh, I was giving you the chance to work it in uh, in this episode, <laughs> which you did. So you were you're forgiven in your lawfare sins. <laughs> That's great. Next time uh, we will we will choose a plenary power centric story and make sure we never deviate from it. You know. Perfect. Well, as long as it has uh, Lady Bird Johnson in there, then uh, then you're fine. That's right. This really narrows the search. Yeah. That's how we yeah. find stories now. We just listen day after day to her audio diaries and look for hints. Next season is going to be about wildflowers. <laughs> yeah. The interstates. I'm actually curious, uh, and this is just for me, actually, uh, you know, how you stumbled upon her audio diaries or, you know, where you heard of them or how you even knew to look for them. Yeah, they're on the LB. They're on the LBJ website, the 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 library's website, and they're all there, and they're in the public domain, as you know. Most of these documents were created in the federal government. Are um, I, in fact, I think so. Our first season, we came across a recording of hers the night that Jim Reeb died, because one of the things that's interesting in the first season is that you know this man, this white minister from Boston, comes down to Selma to participate in the Voting Rights Act movement, and he's he's only there less than 24 hours. He's attacked by these other white men on the street corner, and he ends up dying a few days later. And LBJ mentions him, not by name, but he says, a good man, you know, has died in, in Selma as, as a result of the the protest marches that were that were happening uh, in Selma at the time. And so the, the invocation of his name was a big sort of point for us as we tried to explain to the listener why it would be important to try to solve the murder of, of what happened to him. And I think it was just in some research we were doing about that, that day and the, those moments in the White House. There's actually some really incredible stuff about that speech. Anyway, lots of stuff off the axis of, of our story, but because it's audio and we found this audio diary and actually there's a line that she says uh, that, that, that Lady Bird says and she's she's characterizing i'm going into too much detail here but you asked and i i love this story so i'm going to tell you the whole thing um which is that you know before before the speech before he went to give the speech there were all these protesters on the streets out you know throughout the whole capital in the white house the, itself yeah actually. on the white house lawn yeah right and then after the speech they return and they the the protesters have really thinned out there was something about his speech that really made people who were advocating for civil rights believe that he might actually do something. And in fact, he did. He, he passed the Voting Rights Act. Um, so, it, you know, it's it's a it, in her telling of that night, she's talking about this sort of cacophony of, of voices and the and just the the chaos of the of the White House. And she says, "What a house! What a life!" And we've always loved that idea to characterize. I mean, the pleasure it is for us as reporters, but also just that these cataclysmic moments in American history. And so, you know, when we realized that the 1965 Voting Rights Act was going to be a, a central sort of launching point for the show to discuss the real changes that I think are happening in the middle of the 20th century as it relates to telling a new story about who we might be. And the Voting Rights Act is absolutely a part of the progressive agenda of the Johnson years. You know, of course, we're going back through the archives again, going back through the LBJ Library website. And and then I think one of us just had the idea to sort of, oh, I wonder if uh, Lady Bird had anything to say about that. And sure enough, she'd gone to the Statue of Liberty and has this great thing. And it was just in listening to that, she said this, this idea of the theater and the history. And so there again, Lady Bird is giving us these nuggets that really uh end up imbuing our stories with some meaning so we're two for two we'll see if uh we'll see if she keeps going in the third season well we we roughly began with ladybird so it seems fitting that we should end with ladybird um so andy and chip i, I really want to thank you for for taking the time yeah thank it's you, been Tom. great pleasure the lawfare podcast is produced in cooperation with the brookings institution you can get ad-free versions of this and other Lawfare podcasts by becoming a Lawfare material supporter at patreon.com lawfare. 
You'll also get access to special events and other content available only to our supporters. Please rate and review us wherever you get your podcast. Look out for other shows, including Rational Security, Chatter, Allies, and The Aftermath. Our latest Lawfare Presents podcast series on the government's response to January 6th. Check out our written work at lawfareblog.com. The podcast is edited by Jen Patia Howell, and your audio engineer this episode is Noam Osband of Goat Rodeo. Our music is performed by Sophia Yan. As always, thanks for listening. This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay Authenticity Guarantee. And you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all, jewellery that makes you look like the gem, or sneakers and streetwear so fresh every step feels fly. eBay gets it. So look for the blue check mark next to that thing you love and be confident that every inch, stitch, sole, and logo is checked by experts. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms.